Welcome to Disruptive Successor, a show for next generation leaders in family businesses and entrepreneurs who want to disrupt the status quo and take their existing business to a whole new level. We all know that what got us here isn't going to get us there. This show will provide inspiration, advice, and resources to help you create massive impact. This podcast is sponsored by myself, Jonathan Goldhill, and my company, The Goldhill Group, where we provide coaching for growing companies. I'm Jonathan Goldhill, and my purpose is simple, to guide entrepreneurial leaders in family businesses towards more freedom and fulfillment. I want entrepreneurs to get clarity around the changes that will make them and their businesses more successful so they can experience the same freedom I've enjoyed in my life. Our proven practices challenge business owners to think differently about their business and how they're running it and quite literally become game changers in our clients' companies. Learn more at the goldhillgroup.com website where you can schedule your free strategy session. Hi, it's Jonathan Goldhill and welcome back to another episode of the Disruptive Successor Show. Uh, today, I have a fellow coach on the show with me, Michael Neal, uh, who lives near me, actually, is an internationally renowned transformative teacher, author, broadcaster, speaker, and has been described as having a unique ability to blend the sacred with the profane. He has spent more than three decades as a coach, advisor, friend, mentor, and creative spark plug to founders, CEOs, celebrities, royalty, and those who are up to something in the world. His global client base is wide and diverse. Having served clients in the North America, continents, United UK, Europe, Middle East, and in the fields of investment, sales, energy, manufacturing, the entertainment and media industry. He has been consistently ranked alongside Jack Canfield and Tony Robbins and other legends in the field as one of the top 30 coach coaching thought leaders in the world and continues to run a private practice working with high performers in their fields of expertise. He's a gifted communicator. He's an author of six best-selling books, including Creating the Impossible, The Inside-Out Revolution, The Space Within, and Super Coach. And his books have been translated into more than 25 languages, and he has performed on the TEDx stage, his popular talk, Why Aren't We Awesomer? And Can a TEDx Talk Really Change the World? have been viewed by over 2 million people around the world. And he has a blog and a podcast called Caffeine for the Soul. Oh my God, Michael, what an bio you have. Welcome to the show today. Thank you. I'm sorry. That's all our time, but. uh... (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's great. Like uh, you and I go back and we've been in, we're probably around the same age. We go back in the same number of years and, you know, being, uh, I mean, everyone probably on the show knows who Tony Robbins is and maybe a third of the people know who Jack Canfield is. And I mean, I was organizing Tony Robbins workshops in the early eighties in those firewalks. I was in and you were attending them exactly. And Jack Canfield, uh, long before he wrote the Chicken Soup for the Soul, um, I went to his self-esteem seminars, which I imagine you probably have been around or seen as well. I, I've, I've read and talked to. I mean, he he gave me a very nice testimonial for one of my books. So yeah, we have yeah. That. All right. So like you approach coaching, I think very differently than I do, and I think it's, this is going to be a really refreshing podcast conversation. Because uh, 
I, I'm going to tell you how I approach coaching yeah. first, and then my impressions of you, and you're going to clear up my uh, my impression because we've just gotten to know each other. So I approach it from a fairly tactical and business focused approach. I mean, I, I initially was trained in what in something known as the strategic mindset, um, and you know, getting people to think strategically about being a business owner. And the idea was to transform them from being a technician to being, to thinking like a business owner, an entrepreneur. And, you know, my, my work has evolved over the years, of course, but I, I'm pretty heavy on bringing a set of tools to my clients. So um, the use of which I think will change their thinking and their behavior. And my sense about you is that you approach it from a very different perspective. You come from a you know a, diff- a different position or point of view. Um, I think maybe similar to the 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 book title, the Inside Out Revolution. You focus it back to like who are you? What are your thoughts? Where are you coming from? How do you um, how do you how do you show up in the world? And you know, do you you know and so to amplify a little bit on that and, and the diff- distinction between maybe how I'm coming, where I'm coming from. Well, what, you know, again, without overstepping and pretending I know more about how you do what you do than I do. Right. It, what you do from what I hear and what I think is incredibly valuable is in the horizontal dimension. Mm-hmm. How do I get from here to there? Now, a lot of what I do is in what I would call the vertical dimension. So we're looking at who is it getting from here to there? How is their experience of life and how can they get more out of themselves as they go from here to there? So I think of it as being very complementary with the kind of coaching you do rather than an instead of. Absolutely. I totally agree. I mean, uh, you, one of the first things that I say, and this is, um, this is, parallel to what you just said, but it's not the exact same thing. But one of the first things I say is, is, you know, it's who's on your bus um, and who's on your team is going to matter more than what you're doing and where you're going. Because, and the who in your framework is maybe yourself first. It's like, how do you, how show, do you up? show up? Is exactly. the biggest difference in how things turn out. Yep. Given similar sets of skills and tech, you know, it's it, it, the tactics can be learned, the strategies can be developed and practiced. But if you're a mess, you're going to be a mess applying strategies, and they're not going to work as well. Yeah, it's totally true. I mean, like to me, the best leaders and the best clients who are leading their businesses, um, they're let's just talk about how they show up. They're authentic. They're transparent, meaning they are truthful. Um, they're forthright. They're inspiring. They're always, um, they care a lot about who we are, you know, who as an employee, you know, who, who their teammates are. And they're, they're humble and they're learners and they encourage and motivate in just a, you know, a really big way. And, yeah. One, one of my metaphors for it is the difference between a strength and conditioning coach and yeah. an ex-nose chalkboard coach. And a, a chalkboard coach. Yeah. Yep. They're both really important to the success of the team. And on their own, neither one's going to get you there. 
You know, so if you, you if your team has a great plan but runs out of steam by the second quarter, it's not going to work out. Right. If you've got all the stamina in the world, but you have no strategy. You're going to just run around <laughs> whatever game you're playing, and you'll do something, but it probably won't be enough. And so it's the blending of the two that I found um, really makes the difference. And there are enough people who have put in the hours to become experts at the strategic side and the tactical side. And because I've always just wound up working with people in such a wide variety of fields, there wouldn't be time for me to become an expert at the the field-specific strategies. Fortunately, unless a company is entirely populated by squirrels, I know how human beings work. So I can do my job regardless. Well, let's talk about squirrels because I find that some of my clients over the years and some even currently are like squirrels. It's really hard um, to manage them. And I I remember when I used to run CEO peer groups a decade ago, I used to say that bringing members into the group and then getting them to kind of participate in the or show up the way I wanted them, it was like herding cats. Um, And so, so do you find that you have squirrels in your practice and these are people that are really difficult to lead and, or teach or show or model how to be a leader? Well, my first job is to get people to stop squirreling. (laughs) So it's, you know, I always think of up, you know, the Disney movie squirrel, like God just gets distracted by anything. And, and it isn't the person who squirrels, it's their thinking. Yeah, Our yeah. minds just run amok. Right. The vast majority of people, it is totally random and arbitrary where this thing goes moment to moment. Yeah. The problem with that is you really need it when you're doing anything of note in your work. Well, I think that a lot of people have trouble controlling that. And sometimes it maybe needs to be medicated in certain people. Like, like I've worked with many ADHD entrepreneurs. I'm sure you have too. We used to joke like it's part of the job description. It's part of the job description. Exactly right. You've got to be. But if you're too ADHD, yeah. you know, then you are really difficult. Uh, you, it's a difficult place to manage people from. Yeah. And so if you have someone who's not ADHD and is, uh, boy, EOS uses the term an integrator, you know, you could just call it a chief operating officer, but someone who really executes the vision and the ideas of the of the leader and kind of is the is the face person inside the organization managing the people it's great when you have that person if you don't have that person and you have an, a leader who's super visionary is going off it maybe is he or she is a super salesperson um and they're always distracted some of these people by the cell phone because they're they're like you know they're hooked to it it's really difficult to break that before they're distracted by the cell phone, they're distracted by the cell phone in their head. Exactly. And and so it's, I really mean it when I say job one is showing even people whose minds are all over the place that there are moments where they're not. Right. Moments where they lock in. Right. Moments. And it's beginning to see what, what is it that allows for that? Even if your kind of default mode is scattered. And it, 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 it is challenging, but it's also my job. Right. But have you had the experience? And again, I'm, this is a, I'm thinking about a, a couple of different people that because they're probably very ADHD, 
they can lock in and they will go. I mean, I, I've had clients call me up on the telephone and talk for 30 minutes almost without interruption. Like I, it's like, it's hard to get a word in edgewise. And if I do say something, it's like, oh wait, what? And then they, they pause and then they'll answer and they just keep going. And it, it's like a freight train. It's really difficult. To, well, it's to one, of, one of the reasons. So one of the things that I do with almost any new client, regardless of what they do, is we actually start with three days together. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is there's no point in getting into the detail until you've got some settling going on. Right. I've just found that's long enough with anybody I've ever worked with to get through the noise. Now, sometimes I've got to be really blunt with people and I'm not by nature blunt, but I learned that I sometimes have to tell people to shut up. Right. So uh, that's been a challenge for me too, because I'm, I'm, my disc profile makes me a little bit of a conflict avoider. And so it's a learned behavior. Absolutely. In real life, I'm the nicest guy you'll ever meet. Right. As a coach, I'm a, I'm apparently like if my clients don't say they hate me at least once a month, I'm probably not doing my job. Mm, wow. But, but, okay. they don't, but they don't really mean it. Like they get frustrated because I won't let them squirrel in the way that they're used to squirreling. Okay. But how do you do that? How do you get them in a room for three days without, you know, with the phones turned off without, with them saying, you know, you know, I got family, I got sales, I got clients. I, I can't do that. I couldn't possibly do that. I'll tell you my favorite. So this wasn't actually me, but this was one of my mentors. And he was tasked with, with working with one-on-one with the CEO of a, a, an aerospace company mm-hmm. that was struggling. And he'd worked with the team and that had gone well. But the big boss, the chairman, wanted him to work with the CEO. So he reached out to the CEO and he said, okay, um, I need you to come up here for four days. He used to do it in four days. Um, and the CEO laughed and said, I've got an opening in three years. <laughs> and, 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 uh, and he said, but if you really insist on us being offsite, I've got an offsite across the street that we own. We can do things at the offsite. You can have me for these hours. I'm the client. I'm the one paying. This is how we're doing it. Mm-hmm. And my mentor said, absolutely. I hear you. Here's, I'll, I'll send you through the contract. Sends through the contract, gets a call almost immediately from the CEO going, what the hell is this? Right. He goes, what do you mean? He goes, it says on page one, this is going to be a waste of time and money. And he said, well, yeah. He said, I'll do it your way because you're, you're, you're the one paying the bill, but it's not going to work. And I don't want my reputation sullied by your being all over the place. Wow. Okay. Now, it's a willingness to go that far. You don't always have to go that far. In fact, right. you rarely do have to go that far. Right. But if, Willing to go that far, it will sort before you've even started. Okay. So I'm thinking that if I'm a listener of this podcast and a typical client of mine, they've got 150 or fewer employees. Mm -hmm. The thought of taking three days out, maybe they've got 50 or 25 or fewer employees. The thought of taking three days out is just, it's like a, it's a non-starter for them. And you do it with small businesses. Absolutely. I've done it with, I mean, actually, it's often people wind up finding me because I am unconventional when nothing else has worked. Mm -hmm. So I am often sent somebody when it's too late. Mm. Like their company is going down and I'm a last resort. Right. So there is an element of when you've tried doing it the way you think you've got to do it and it has become obvious that's not going to work. At that point, anything is worth trying other than more of the same. 
I have also had clients where they're not in crisis, but it might take us six to nine months from our initial conversation before they come. Wow. Can you, can you give, us, give me an idea of what those three days might look like? Yeah, they, they will be very variable, but generally speaking, the first hour is pure squirrel. It, it's just, I just try and make space for them to get it all out. Gotcha. Tell me more, tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. <laughs> By the time, even the most ardent narcissist <laughs> right. runs under steam at some point. Right, exactly. And so once, once they've emptied then we can start. Then I'll start asking some questions. Gotcha. Then we'll start exploring because usually by then I've also got a sense of what they're up against. Because in that dump, there's been a lot of noise, but there's also going to be some stuff that's relevant. Okay. So you're not going in then with a prepared agenda, it sounds like. you're. I, 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 I have to go in blind. Okay. Now, I'm not completely blind because as I say, I know it's a person. So there are certain things I know are going to be there. They're going to overthink things. They're going to be preoccupied with one or more things that's stopping them from seeing the big picture. You know, those that's incredibly predictable. They're going to almost certainly be feeling way too much stress to perform optimally and way too much pressure to perform optimally. That's almost a given. It's not actually true in every case, but it is often the case. So I'm, I say I'm going in blind. I have a sense of what I'm going to bump into, but I don't know until the person is there what that's going to look like in their world. So I worked with the head of a movie studio mm-hmm. and, you know, he was, you know, I was, a, he burned out. And so the studio sent him to me to see if I could do anything with him. And when he explained his work day, you know, he was picked up at seven he was given, he had a special iPad that he would watch all the dailies and go through all the notes in the back of the car on the way into the studio. He would have meetings scheduled for in-between meetings. So he had a, he'd have meetings walking between meetings. Mm-hmm. And the only time in the day he got to pause is if he called his wife. And so he told me he would call his wife and just be on the phone and say, I got nothing to say, but can you just stay on the phone so they won't bother me? Mm-hmm. And he didn't get that nobody could thrive in that setup. So he thought it was a failure on his part that he wasn't able to do it. It was a failure in setup that that was designed for somebody to fail inside of. Okay. So you go in and you're focused on the individual that's sitting across from you. Um, Do you do 360s or anything like that before you go in? Do you think that it's valuable to get other people's input um, do you spend an hour or two with each of the, their direct you know, reports to find out what's your experience of them? I am more inclined to do that after I've got a sense of the person than before. Sometimes they come with 360 in hand. Right. So the company's already done it, and that's part of why they send them to me. Right. Okay. <laughs> because it's like, uh, this didn't come off well. And people are generally speaking pissed off about their 360s when that happens. Of course. Of course. Fair, and they, you know, this isn't right. And that's because. And all that. And so there's a certain element of getting somebody just to step back enough to see something. You know, if when somebody's completely reactive, there's no point in my, you know, my, I, I got a lot of family from Texas. And one of the lines that I remember growing up was don't talk sense to a barking dog. 
right? Like there's, right. there's no point in getting right. in until somebody is settled. Uh, I, it makes perfect sense. I think it's a really interesting approach. And um, yeah, I agree. You can't, it's sometimes people have said, uh, you know, why don't you say something to this person? And I said, uh, you know, it's irrational view to think that I can be rational with an irrational person. Like it doesn't make any sense. Um, so let me ask you assessments, the value of assessments. Do you, do you put much weight in them? Do you, do you like to use them before we go in? And I'm talking about just for listeners, these could be Colby, these could be disc, these could be Myers-Briggs um, profiles. I mean, there are so many. I, I used, so I used to use Colby a lot. I used right. to use sort of a more esoteric one called the Enneagram, which oh, I find sure. quite helpful. Yep. Um, I occasionally would use disc. I stopped about 15 years ago mm-hmm. because I found that it, it prejudiced me away from the person and got me focused on their habits. Yeah. Because what those things show is what somebody habitually does. It doesn't show what's possible for them. It shows whatever habit they've gotten into over the years. And I found ultimately the whole point is I'm trying to free them up from their habitual way of approaching things. So doing more assessments that reinforce the idea that that's who they are worked against me. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, I've been using assessments for probably 15 years, mostly DISC, and I pay less and less attention to them over the last several years. I, um, It's a standard thing that I offer in my coaching package, and I oftentimes neglect to just even deliver it. Yeah, because- and I, went I absolutely, there was a time where I kept doing it, but right. I noticed I wasn't actually even looking at it at times and thought, right. okay, should stop now. Yeah, I think that makes some good sense. And yet some people really rely on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's important, though, that we get a balanced perspective. And I think one of my coaches told me that when it's just self-reported, I think he called it ipsative. Um, when it's other reported, it's some other word. And that we need a we need a blend and a balance of, you know, outside perspectives and Inside, you know, self-assessment perspective. So I what I will sometimes do is after I've spent time with somebody, I'll go back to get the 360 mm-hmm. or to ask more specific questions of members of the team. Mm-hmm. I don't want to start there because I want to meet the person, not the description. Okay. All right, let's get back to the squirrel concept because once a squirrel, maybe always a squirrel, you know, well, it's really hard to change that. Turns out no. That, okay. And that, I wouldn't have necessarily known that before I started working with squirrels. Okay. <laughs> this metaphor and running with it. But, yeah. but actually, I have yet to be with somebody who doesn't settle down over three days. Right. But then do they come better. back to that a week or a month later? And you, have well, to, you have to keep it gets easier every time. So, gotcha. so we just start there. Then, then we have enough of a common ground, a common language. There's enough of a trust and rapport built by then. Mm-hmm. That we can shortcut it. We don't have to sit through another three days to get them to settle the next time. Right. I, I, I can usually go, hey, you're called, but right now you're not even there for me to talk to. And by then that's not harsh because they, okay. know, they know what I mean. Is the setting why. important, Michael? I mean, is it, I mean, do you, I heard once a, a venture capitalist um, telling the uh, founder and CEO of a, one of their companies, portfolio companies they had invested in, 
that and, and uh, that you know it was basically it was time for them to step aside. And uh, he, the VC, described it as taking a. Um, uh, they went out to Santa Monica, and it was like taking a short, a, a long walk off a short pier, um, <laughs> which is kind well, of. Funny. That's not a setting I use. <laughs> no. Do you find that setting matters? I mean, is, I, I, like, is it a restaurant? Is it a home office? Is I it a that being away from their normal environment is helpful. Yes, I agree. Because there's less triggers as yep. environment. I find the more informal I can make the environment, right, the better. Because it's. I used to find I learned more about my clients making coffee for them before a session than in the session, mm. because they were they weren't on, mm-hmm. and I got a sense of them. So right. I. I tend to, if I'm, if I'm home, I tend to see clients at my house. Right. Um, if I'm on the road, then I will find the nicest, most living room style hotel setting I can find. Got it. Got it. It's got to be free of distractions. Yeah. If there's too many distractions, if it's over a meal. Um, and, and, know, and, it, and often, you know, you'll, you get an intuition about, hey, it's time to go for a walk. Exactly. Like, let's right. take this conversation on a walk. Right. And, and again, it may sound, you know, to somebody listening, like, okay, so, but but that's because it, people are really shocked at how different their business looks when they're settled than when they're going, when they're squirreling. Sure. Sure. Well, I mean, I I had a, a, you know, one, one, one client story comes to mind. Um, This guy was he came out to me because his wife, he was about to sell. He'd had a, for 20 years, family business, but uh, 150 employees um, in the, the, the pet food industry. Mm-hmm. And they'd been very successful, but he was losing it. And to the point where, you know, his marriage was falling apart. His business was falling apart. He was screaming at people. He knew it was falling apart. And mm-hmm. so he'd, he'd, he was about to sell the business at a loss just to get out of it. And his wife said, go see this guy. She'd come across one of my books before you do. Mm-hmm. It's like, all right. So he, so he came out and I would say for the first three quarters of a day, I was just sitting with a bundle of fear. Like he was just everything that was coming out of him was a scary story about what was going to happen. Right. And there wasn't much for it, but to sit with him until he got it out. Uh, you know, that's an important function, by the way, for people who are listening and really understanding like what is coaching all about. I mean, definitely one of the things I first learned when I first became a coach in 2004 was sometimes you're just letting people burn the fog off and letting them vent and I letting like that them air. Very much. Yeah, it is. It's just making space. Yep. You know, headspace is another way of talking about what I'm talking about. Yeah. Headspace does wonders. So we did that. Now, I pointed out a few things to him of the nature of of where security comes from, where stress comes from, where Mm -hmm. pregnancy comes from. He saw it so dramatically that the second day, it felt like I was in the office with a completely different person. Mm. To the point where I actually got a little insecure that his wife would think he had been faking it. Because this was a guy on medication. He had, and so I actually got him to fly his wife out to sit with us on the third day. And I thought she'd be thrilled that he'd settled. Mm-hmm. 
And she grilled him for an hour. Like she was me. Like she was, yeah, well, what are you going to, are you going to have to do this? And are you going to medicate before this? And are you going to sell it? And he had gotten so clear in himself. Mm -hmm. He could answer any of her questions. Look, we're not going to sell at that price, but maybe if they offer something above this, we'll consider it. And, And it was just that simple. It wasn't that I, you know, gave him any deep psychology. I'm not a psychologist, but I know how people's minds work. And once he settled, there's a reason he had a successful business for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he wound up six weeks later selling the business at a huge profit um, and moving on. And now he runs a different business. But it, it was fascinating. That was one of the most dramatic ones where really the only thing that changed was he settled down. Look, it sounds like just... Uh, you know, it's understandable that you've been ranked alongside Tony Robbins. I mean, someone once referred to me as the Tony Robbins of the landscape industry because that's where I was niched. Um, Tony is a man. Like if Tony is great at one thing, the one thing, his one thing is basically changing people's state. Yeah. And that's a big part of what you're talking about here, you know, is, is transformation, internal transformation. Uh, so the difference and, and I worked with Tony, you know, both as a student and I didn't work with him the way you worked with him, but I spent a few years in his systems and mm-hmm. courses, programs. And what, like what actually changed my whole life was something I read in, in one of Tony's first book in unlimited power mm-hmm. where he talked about, cause I used to struggle with my head. Like that's, I, I was worse than any of my clients have ever been. So I kind of, that's what makes you a good teacher of what I don't have an arrogance about it because I've been there. Right. right. But one of the things he said in, and it was just a, like a throwaway exercise in some ways, he said, if your head gets really noisy, find the volume knob and turn it down. Mm-hmm. I remember thinking, okay, this is stupid. And I'm right. Imaginary volume knob, but I got so quiet that it was actually almost spiritual. And I, I realized years later that had the next line in the book been, if you're experiencing a kind of a profound quiet and stillness, that is your default setting. That is the way we are made. And then we noise ourselves up. Unfortunately, the next line in the book was, if that helped, I've got a thousand more techniques I can do on you. (laughs) Yes. Well, uh, that's a little overwhelming. And that would probably send maybe some uh, hope, uh, want to be, um, whatever, self-motivated entrepreneurs into some hopelessness because they get overwhelmed. So that's really tough. But I think that's really important. I think that's one of the things that that we do, that I'll speak for myself, that I do is, is really hold a space for someone um, when I'm with them and be non-judgmental and listen, actively listen to what they're what they're saying. What you know, sometimes you have to hear the intent behind the content. And you have to redirect them. So we are kind of psychologists of some sort. Um, But maybe the the reason that I don't consider myself that, although I did, that was, you you know, I think mentioned when we talked earlier that I was certified in nine different fields. Mm -hmm. It's like where I've settled is you can operate outside of your psychology. You're always going to have a psychology. Your, your, your habitual thinking is always going to be there. Mm-hmm. But it, it doesn't have to drive. 
It doesn't have to run the show. It can be there in the background and you can be freaking out in your head and then do what actually makes sense to do anyways. So a lot of what I've learned, and this is, you know, through 30 plus years, you know, as, as, as you, you learn over time, is that when, when people realize that their default is where they're trying to get to, it's not a created state. Right. I sometimes talk about it. It's not really a manufacturing operation. It's a mining operation. Mm-hmm. You're looking for something that's already in there underneath the noise, not a manufactured state the way Tony does in his work. And he does it brilliantly. Yes. The problem is you have to keep doing it. Well, so one of the things that I uh, took away from Tony's workshop, and this was pretty recent, actually, a couple of years ago, and I had been away from Tony for two decades, was his his morning routine, hmm. um, which he calls priming. And uh, anyone can find that on a YouTube video. Um, I did it almost every day for at least uh, a month, maybe a couple of months. And this was right during COVID when I knew that this lockdown thing might be pretty severe and pretty intense. And, you know, I, I had to be able to be very present for my clients without going into my own um, fears, uncertainties, doubts. Um, and so that priming exercise was basically a, a form of meditation, a form of cleansing, a physical exercise where you didn't literally have, you literally didn't have to move out of your chair because you were just doing this exercise thing. And I've taken that, I've I've shown this to some clients and asked them to do the same thing. I mean, don't you wish you could just get into a room with sometimes these these squirrels um, and have them just clear by meditating for 15 or 20 minutes? And they would think, I paid you this kind of money to sit here and be quiet for 30 minutes? I mean, are you kidding me? I've had a client... (laughs) upset because I had them sit still for one minute. Oh yeah. Well, they, they did it. And they were like, this is ridiculous. I right. didn't even expect, and I'm like, really one minute. And we actually, it led to a really good conversation because even they got, when I played it back to them, Oh yeah, there's something wrong. If I can't take one minute. Yeah. Yeah. So Part of how I do it. And it's weird to call, say, do it is I spend as much of my time in that meditative state as I can. So when somebody comes and hangs out with me, they wind up settling. It's very rare that somebody can spend an hour with me and not be more settled at the end than they were at the beginning. Yeah, I, 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 I get that. You can totally relate to it. I once went to a hypnotherapist about 25 years ago, and she showed me how she had to clear before she got into a next client meeting. And I used to think about that. Do I need to clear? And I thought, you know, if you live in a place where and I've been practicing yoga for 30 years. So if you come from a place where there's a stillness that you can access like right away, and that's your default, like, why do you need to clear all this stuff? I mean, I, I get you would need to clear, like I've had challenges with my teenage daughter when she was really difficult. And yeah, I needed to clear before I got into a you know client meeting. Or if you had, you know, financial worries or, you know, health worries or something, you know, you something happened to your dog or something and you were, you know, yeah, I mean, you there's, got, you know, death in the family or, I mean, yeah, I get that. But otherwise you like living in that state of being clear, otherwise you're going to be reacting all the time. Right. And so a lot of what I'm 
showing my clients as best I can is a that clear is a real possibility, even for someone who thinks they're a squirrel. Right. Yeah, that's great. And then second, that once you get a real feel for clear and recognize how much more effective you are from that space than from the drama space, which is the opposite of clear. Right. Then there's like a self-correcting mechanism in people. I call it the psychological immune system, which just starts once they get really clear that clear is where it's at. Their whole system, kind of like a thermostat, starts adjusting them. So they start to notice sooner that they've gone back up into the drama. And then they settle back down into the clarity more quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, in any business, sometimes there's a drama um, and even what we folks call the drama triangle might exist where there's a, a persecutor, there's a rescuer and uh, um, you know, the third role. The, in that the what? A victim of some sort. Yes, a victim. Sorry, I couldn't even think of the word. Um, and, you know, we see this and I see this sometimes in family businesses and people can move between those different relationships. And, uh, you know, just uh, before, like, I think it was a previous episode to this one, I talked with someone who specializes in high conflict personalities. Really interesting because we're talking about people who have uh, borderline or narcissistic or histrionic you know, serious emotional dysregulation and how that um, can throw you as an employer, right? 100% of your problems can come from 10% of those types of people. So, um, but we're not talking so much today about that, although we could be. Um, well, the bit of that that I think is is relevant to the conversation that we're in is there is a huge difference between your clients, your employees, your family being in drama, mm -hmm. and you joining them. Mm -hmm. It is entirely possible for them to be in drama while you're in clarity. Right. You have to remove, I mean, if you're a leader, you're going to be effective. You have to remove yourself from that drama triangle. You know, you can't be part of it. And you need to be clear about where you're going and you use the term VUCA, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity. When, when there's uncertainty, maybe because of COVID or because of the economy, or maybe your business is affected by interest rates, or maybe you're in a business where um, there's technological trends that are really fast or social you know, cha changes or trends. Um, these are things that you have to strategically think through and get to a point where you become certain about things. Yes. Yes. And the biggest thing that I've seen that makes the difference is to be able to separate out volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity in the world from right. volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity in my head. Right. There is VUCA in the world. Right. That's just is. You can't, you're, you, you, you want a business without that, don't have it on this planet. But how much of that you have going on inside you is variable and is far less dependent on anything that's going on in the world than your own understanding of how you work. And, and so one of the places where I find clients get it most easily is I talk about the difference between overwhelm and overload. Mm -hmm. So overwhelm is when you're stacking the problems. Oh, and then I've got to deal with this. 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 And before long, it's just like, oh, it's all too much. 
Right. Now you can get overwhelmed going to the grocery store, right? That's nothing to do with the actual task at hand. That's to do with what's going on in your head. Overload is when you literally like that film guy I was talking about earlier, where he literally, there was just too much on his plate. It wasn't to do with his state of mind. It was to do with, there was too much Mm -hmm. to do for what can be done. So until you settle the overwhelm, you don't know whether you're overloaded or not. Because settle meaning like make decisions about no, certain settle, things. That are- settle actually means getting back to okay, getting back to present. Right. Getting back to balance. Then you can take a look and you can see if you're overloaded or not. And sometimes you are and sometimes you're not. Okay, so let's put this in the context of work-life balance. And so uh, I want to get your perspective on it. Um, uh, I have a client. He's very busy. He's got really is in a startup business that he's scaling. He's doing things really different than the way others do it in his industry. He happens to be in the green industry where a lot of my clients are. And he's finding that it's really difficult to keep his work-life balance because he's he does everything the best. He's not a control freak or a micromanager, but he's built some great systems. And until he can onboard more people um, that can do what he does and free himself up, he's going to be in this out-of-balance state. And we try and get him doing things like, hey, you got to go to the gym. You got to like find time to meditate. You got to find family time. You got to compartmentalize. Um, you have to prioritize. You have to set your daily, you know, and weekly kind of agenda and goals. But this is going to go on for a while until the business gets to a point where there's more helpers in it. So I, this is a, a, another great example of where the the prevailing metaphor is unhelpful. Mm-hmm. So life work balance is a metaphor of scales, and you've got these two things, and you're trying to get them to come into balance. In the horizontal dimension, it looks like you should be able to pull it off. If I right. do a little less business and a little more life and then a little more life and a little more business and so on. I, the metaphor that I tend to work with is concentric circles. Mm-hmm. And the center circle is your own presence and well-being. Okay. So until you are in the center, until you are grounded in the center, it, it wouldn't matter what was on the agenda. Then you kind of go out to another circle and you start looking at, okay, can I come from this place while I'm working and while I'm at home? Mm -hmm. Not crazy at work and calm at home or calm at work and crazy at home. And I've worked with clients who are both, right? Who who have that out of whack one way or another. Then you start to see, wow, can I come from this place? even when there's a circle of VUCA where things are kind of crazy and it's not, it's not obvious what's going to happen next. And it's not linear. Like we know it's not linear. It's, it's not like if I just do this, that will happen. There's too many variables for that. But it always, the, the reason people like the idea of life work balance is because they feel settled. Well, you can, the, the inner part of the circle is that feeling of being settled. And then there is a flow where at times that flow is going to be much heavier on business. And at times that flow is going to be much heavier on 
other activities. But because it's all coming from that settled place, it actually doesn't feel out of balance. And it's just yes, true. I, Look, I, if I think you it's want to create great stuff in the world with your company, you are going to be out of balance. But that doesn't mean you have to be off balance. Right. I get it. I mean, it makes sense. I totally agree with you. It's about flow. I think a lot of times there's uh, what I've observed is that there are decisions that have yet to be made and that indecisiveness is causing, um, I don't know if you call it overwhelm or overloaded, but uh, it, I would call it, that's what's causing the overwhelm. Hmm. And once you make decisions about certain things, um, and this is back to the volatility, the uncertainty, that then it's just easier to recognize that, okay, I might be out of balance. I might be putting more energy into my work right now. Um, mm. But if I make a decision that family comes first, um, I explain to my family, like, this is a temporary thing. And here's where I see the end to it. And bear with me. Well, one of the ways I define leadership is it, it, it's, it's, it, it's the art of aligning intention. So part of my role as a leader is to align the intentionality within my family. It's to align the intentionality within my business. Now, if I can't do that at home, it doesn't really matter how I behave. If, if my family thinks I should be doing something different to what I'm doing and shouldn't be up to what I'm up to, the fact that I try to spend more time with them is usually going to go badly mm -hmm. because it's never going to be enough. I'm going to get frustrated with them. They're going to get frustrated with me. The leadership role within the family or within the business is getting everybody aimed in the same direction. Then we can work the details out together because they will change. There will be times where it's, no, I actually need to not be this. That's one project too many. Like I, I, I have had, there's one client in particular I remember where they, they were obsessed with, um, you know, a number. Like, we've got to bring in this number. It was mm -hmm. an aspirational number. Mm -hmm. And I watched and essentially, like, let's say it wasn't, but let's say the number was a million. The first 900,000 actually was completely in flow and organic and happened. They almost killed themselves. Like, they literally thought they had a stroke trying to get from 900,000 to a million. That's the problem with trying to with just not being tuned into it. Yep. Whereas if and when you sort of wake up from that and go, okay, let's see how far we can go from balance, from settled, from this place. The answer is usually a lot further than you think. And then it doesn't become problematic on the outside. Similarly within the business, if there's not an alignment of intention, then it's going to be inefficient just by def definition. Now, a lot of people that I've come across think of leadership as aligning action, but actually to me, that's management. Now you may also have to do that, mm -hmm. but that's a different gig. That comes second. There's no gotcha. point in trying to get action organized if you're not on the same page about what you're up to. Okay. So I'm going to shift gears as we start to wrap up a little bit here. Um, uh, some favorite books that you have uh, that are go-to 
that you often recommend to clients? Um, do you have some? Or uh, I mean, if not books, movies or podcasts or something else that you think like, this is a great place for you to get started before we have a conversation or, you know, yeah. during our conversation. You know, I, and, and I, I won't feel too bad about it because you've got your book up behind you. <laughs> but I do generally, yeah, I generally have them read my books or listen to my podcast because it's a very consistent message. Right. Obviously what we're going to do. Um, other books that I've just found. Which help- one do you start with, though? Um, your books? Most clients. Depend upon the person and the situation. It does a bit, though I tend to um, just by default say, read the first three chapters of the Inside Out Revolution. Okay. Um, because that, if that, if they're going to get pissed off with me, they're going to get pissed off in the first three chapters of the Inside Out Revolution. Okay. I'd rather have that come up right at the beginning. And do you, um, what do you want them to take away from those first three chapters? I just want them to take it for the checking. I, I want them to look at it mm-hmm. and, and just, I don't mind if they agree with it, disagree with it, love it, hate it. It's a shared language that we can start with. Okay. But is, is there a gut check? Is that what I heard you say? Like a check-in like on, you know, are you doing these types of things? Is there some kind of a... No, no. Oh, it, okay. It is simply a very revolutionary, hence the title of the book, but a very mm-hmm. different model of how human beings work. Okay. And so that's, that's where I tend to start. Now, in terms of business books, I, I really like a lot of the Patrick Lencioni stuff. Of course. Particularly Getting Naked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. Great for consultants, by the way. Absolute favorite. Yep. I really like, it used to be called The Three Signs of a Miserable Job. I think it got renamed at some Mm. point. That's another of my favorites of his. Um, And so, you know, if somebody wants a sort of a business book, there's a a really nice business book that not many people know about um, called, it's on my shelf, so I better turn and look, Invisible Power. Um, by Ken Manning and Robin Sharbett and Sandy Crop. And they were mentors of mine. Mm. They, they do the work that I do, but they tend to do it in like Fortune 200 companies, whereas I tend to do it in companies more like the kind you're describing. Right. Um, and that's, that's one of my favorite business introductions um, to the work that I do. That's great. Hey, Michael, this has been a really interesting 45 minutes that we've spent together. Yeah. Um, any final thoughts you want to share or close with? Any any things that you want to offer to people? I, I think the thing that um, I've just seen again and again and again is you're not screwed. No matter how screwed you think you are. Right. You're not doesn't mean that we can turn every company around. doesn't mean that everything's going to work out because that's not the nature of the world. But it does mean that there is a creative capacity inside people that when they have the headspace, bring solutions. Like I, I often use the example, actually, you were talking about books, but of John Grisham novels. Mm-hmm. Every John Grisham novel, the protagonist is screwed. Mm-hmm. And then they're not. They find some way, right. it is legitimate, it's not magic, it's not like, wait a minute. But they find some creative way, you know, we used to call it lateral thinking, but it's not even that. It comes, it's original thought. It's not in the database. You can't find it by reviewing strategies that you've tried in the past. And those moments of, oh, those are the moments that turn businesses around. 
and turn wow. people around. Well, I and like that concept. Yeah. I mean, that's the old expression. If you, you know, if there's a will, there's a way. And like, if you have the will and you want, you will find a way. Um, and, and, and it's just that you kind of actually, it, it's a little bit counterintuitive because to find the way, you slightly need to back off the will. You, you need to stop trying so hard. Right. Because what's going to come is new. It's not regurgitated. And yet we replay the same ideas again and again and again, thinking we're going to find something new in there. Every time I've seen a business turnaround or a big leap, it came kind of out of, out of the blue. It was like, it was so not what had been being talked about. And yet once you hear it, you go, how did we not see that before? And the reason you didn't see it before was because you were squirreling. <laughs> you didn't notice. <laughs> so, well, you seem like such a nice guy. It's hard to believe that you'd be pissing people off. But I could imagine that just getting people to slow down is uh, is really challenging. So, yeah. So, folks, if if you're struggling with bright, shiny object syndrome and you're constantly chasing, going down, you know, whatever, being a squirrel, going down rabbit holes. Um, you need to get hold of yourself and whether you do it with someone like myself or Michael or someone else, a coach, uh, a mentor, um, there's lots of ways of getting still and, and getting clear. Um, you need to come from that place. If you're going to lead, there's no question about it. So. No. And, and, and I think that's, that is the hopeful thing is you can, I, I have absolutely literally not met somebody in 30 plus years who can't it's great yeah. so encouraging michael neal where can they find you i think that they can find you at michaelneal.org yes michael.org if people want to kind of learn more the the quick introductions are the ted talk why aren't we awesomer in and uh the podcasts are only 10 minutes each so oh great people can jump into and just run through a bunch of them and get a, a good sense of things. It's a great length of time for squirrels. Yeah. That's about all they can sit and listen to. So super interesting. Thanks for being part of the show today. Uh, folks, if you like this, please share and tell others about it. Um, subscribe to the podcast if you haven't yet. And give us a great review on your listening podcast app of choice. Thank you so much. Uh, appreciate it. Stay tuned for our next show. This podcast is sponsored by myself, Jonathan Goldhill, and my company, The Goldhill Group, where we provide coaching for growing companies. I'm Jonathan Goldhill, and my purpose is simple, to guide entrepreneurial leaders in family businesses towards more freedom and fulfillment. I want entrepreneurs to get clarity around the changes that will make them and their businesses more successful so they can experience the same freedom I've enjoyed in my life. Our proven practices challenge business owners to think differently about their business and how they're running it and quite literally become game changers in our clients' companies. Learn more at the goldhillgroup.com website where you can schedule your free strategy session. Thank you for joining us on the Disruptive Successor Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, review, and share with a friend who would benefit from the message. If you're interested in picking up a copy of my book, Disruptive Successor, 
go to DisruptiveSuccessor.com.